Alrighty, let's go. See, it's just like fancy here. Yeah, it's like it's a fancy dinner party. Hello, and welcome to a very fancy version of Plants and Pipettes, where we talk about molecular plants, uh, molecular plant science, I should say, while Yoram wears a suit. <laughs> yes, and you're also very pretty, I can see, from our live video feed. Um, I mean, I, I'm going to be honest that I, I told Yoram that he had to dress pretty, and then I completely did not commit to the idea myself at all, and rocked up to the podcast recording, and Yoram was beautiful and suited, and I was like, okay. Hold that thought, and then I went and put lipstick on. So I have made the minimal effort of putting lipstick on my face. Still, I feel very fancy, and I quite enjoy dressing up for for this. I mean, uh, to be honest, like it was very simple for me. I just had to like it took me five minutes to put on a suit. The last thing was actually like I my 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 tie wasn't tied in a knot, and I had to figure out how to do this. But um, so I did like the simplest version yeah, of it. Yeah, I went to a fancy private school, so we had to tie ties like every day for the winter uniform. So wow, I don't know how no. to do that. I yeah. do this like every two years once, um, and then I always look up something on the web and try to figure out like do one of the fancier knots. But if you have no experience, I always look off a little bit. Um, so now I did like the simplest possible knot. Uh, it's, it's quite a good look actually. It's a kind of a skinny tie. I do yeah. think like bow tie is my ultimate favorite kind of tie, but a skinny tie. Yeah. My you might look a bit twee in a bow tie. You've got the beard thing going on as well. So you might end up looking a little bit like... And I know very few people who can pull off a bow tie. For most people, it actually Doctor looks who. very ridiculous. Yeah, I think Doctor Who is one of them. I have one friend that I can... That um, I, where I would oh, say I he, he pulls... Oh, I friend of yours. His Instagram is literally all pictures of bow ties. I no, think I might have followed. No? I think it might... Uh, Does his name start with an M? Yeah. Yeah, it's him. Yeah. Um, now now I gave uh, like a clue away. <laughs> I, I was hoping that I have like several friends that wear bow ties and all of them in their heads, if they listen to this, they're like, ah, yeah, it's probably me he's talking about. But now that you gave an initial out, um, no, like, I, I a lot think of the non-Ms like, are now, what? I don't look I think good I in literally a bow tie. went to one of your parties one time and I saw this guy and he was wearing a bow tie and then yeah. I was telling you for like an hour this guy is amazing because he had a bow tie and then you made some like off the hand comment of like just go look at his Instagram and then I might have like stalked his Instagram <laughs> and be like wow this guy really is amazing he's got like 30 bow ties this is the best thing ever yeah yeah it's true like he's he's really into them but I think he can pull it off and that's that's why it's it's cool but I know others who try to do it and it always just like looks like the weird uncle look um, yeah and that's yeah. not a good look that's what I'm thinking like with you because you've got the beard as well maybe it would look a little bit uncle-y like that would give it the, the uncle look I don't know but we ha we don't know until we try Yoram I mean personally I think I and also our listeners would really like to see you in a top hat but it's not really <laughs> compatible with our recording kind of get up with the with the headphones yeah also I don't have a pot top hat so I mean this can be arranged come on yeah that's true but um yeah, I'm team skinny tie uh, all the yeah. way. <laughs> What's happening with you? We're in day five, week five of um, lockdown, kind of ish around that stage, and apparently we've now got to the stage where dress ups are mandatory on occasions. <laughs> yes. um, Especially in like audio content, I felt like yes. this is the perfect <laughs> opportunity for all our listeners who can't see us to dress up. <laughs> 
Firstly, I'll put stuff on Instagram and Facebook. And secondly, I think this podcast has always been the sort of podcast where we constantly reference things that our listeners cannot see. So yes. it's, it's a very like visual, imaginative podcast is what I would say. Yeah. And this podcast is sort of the the, uh, the clock that reminds me of the weeks passing because otherwise it would just be like one big mush that... I can't tell the days apart. I can't, like, if you ask me what I did five, four days ago, I, I have no idea. I don't know what day it was. I don't know what I was doing. Um, I think it's really important to, like, like I mean, obviously have a routine during the week, but also to make more effort to try and delineate the weekend from the week. So, like, do, like, you know, have a special breakfast only on the weekend or, like, make sushi on, you know, do special things on the weekend because otherwise, like, that's really a problem, right? Yeah. Not feeling... Yeah. Give yourself a little project, like sew some clothes for your baby or, um, I don't know, press flowers, <laughs> make more bread, look at foxes. What else do you do normally in your spare time? Yeah, yeah. I think what I did, like, I, yeah, I did obviously make more bread. Um, I made rye bread, a full whole rye bread, which is usually not my style, uh, but I quite liked it. And so maybe I'm now into rye breads, apparently. This is what this crisis has Was that like to. a rye sourdough or yeah, just... a rye sourdough yeah, and just like 100% rye flour. Usually I mix it and usually it's like not more than 15-20% of rye in a wheat f uh, flour bread. Um, but wheat flour is harder and harder to get and uh, I have five kilograms of rye flour, so I'm going to use that now. Yeah, I would like to say that I made my second sourdough of isolation. So, and I, I, it was it was quite crunchy. It came out okay. And then I took photos and I showed it to Yoram, and he was immediately like, "No, fail! You've overproofed it. No, you've underproofed it," because it was really quite dense. Which I mean, he's not wrong. Except I would like to comment that I did not underproof it. I overproofed it. I forgot about it for 48 hours, and then was like, "What is this thing sitting in my oven? Oh shit! It's my loaf. I forgot to bake." And then I baked <laughs> it. So that's. Yeah. That's not the way to do sourdough, apparently. <laughs> I mean, we always talk about how important it is to publish negative results and so <laughs> that others don't repeat your mistakes. So I think it's fine um, to like. Imagine share. if I had made the most delicious sourdough ever. This would be like, you know, Tegan discovers a new type of sourdough where you just kind of yeah you start playing with it and then you get bored and you go and do something else and then you leave it in the oven because it's too cold in the in the flat and then uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a thing. One of these high risk projects where um yeah, it's it's not it's a given a <laughs> that, that you will have a successful publication, but if you get one, it will be really, really good. Mm. I mean, yeah. It's a bit better than just eating the flour out of the package, but it's also a lot more work than eating the flour out of the package, so I'm not sure I'm really winning at this stage. Like I luckily was never that desperate. Which is <laughs> like spoon to dry flour from the bag. Um it was more like at the moment my sourdough has not become good enough where I think you know what like me nurturing and loving that that sourdough starter culture really gave me the gave me the results I wanted. I'm more just like mm, yeah, it's still it's still it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, that's that's with. I mean, I'm baking bread now for literally for I don't know five years or more, maybe even ten years now that I'm trying uh, to make bread. And I would say only in like the last year or two, I got to a point where I'm happy myself with the things that I can bake. And um, it's kind of ridiculous because it's so simple. Like with a sourdough, you don't even add yeast. You just have like water and flour and salt that you mix together and your sourdough. And you would think, how hard can it be with these few ingredients? But actually, 
yeah, there's so many small things where you have to get sort of a feeling and a routine and how uh, to get it right. And But I think there's also like a difference between you and I in baking. Like you do it quite properly like you look at the recipes and you work out how it should be done and then you optimize and you you like write notes on the recipe book you should add this like again this time you sent me a recipe I looked at the recipe I looked at how much sourdough starter culture I had and your recipe said you only need 20 grams of sourdough starter culture and I was like no I have like 400 grams so I poured 300 grams of sourdough starter culture and then just sprinkled some like flour and added a bit of water added some salt this time that was definitely a plus like an, <laughs> an extra bit of salt and then just kind of massaged it a bit with my hands and I was like that'll probably work <laughs> and then I walked away from it for two days yeah then then I think what happened is that your culture completely ate up all of the flour and sort of then inflated on itself because it literally yes. ate up all of the nutrients uh, in it um, but yeah and it went through like different stress conditions I probably developed new strains of yeast in there because yeah. like it got too cold and then it got too warm because I put it like Because it was too cold in the flat, so I turned the oven on, but then turned the oven off and then put it in the oven, like in the kind of warm oven. But, but my oven... They definitely <laughs> had a party in there. Like, they had a very, very yeah. good time <laughs> until they ran out, uh, ran out of uh, flour to, to consume. Okay, I think we have to turn off from the... Um, the bread podcast and go to our favorite plant, yeah? That might yes, be the way to go. let's talk a little bit about science and plants <laughs> and stuff. This theme song seems very appropriate for your style of dress. So fancy. My favorite plant. Yarim is wearing a suit, sipping red wine and talking about his favorite plant. Yeah, and my favorite plant has the beautiful name um, Schlumbergera. And <laughs> Schlum. And uh, it's what something that I, I think you actually brought up uh, last week when we posted about uh, different plants for Easter. And Schlumbergera Gärtnerie is... Um, the Easter cactus and mm -hmm. I looked at the Latin name and I was like this sounds uh, funny to me um, it's, it sounds like a completely made up word for kids it's like like from a, a children's story it's just like if you go over the mountains you get to the Schlumbergera um, mm -hmm. and that's why it uh, got my attention so I looked a little bit ab uh, into this uh, it's actually a genus um, that's named genus? after mm -hmm. a, a genus named after Frédéric Schlumberger a Frenchman And um, he's not French. He must be German. His uh, first name was spelled the French way, so maybe I don't know what his roots were. Friedrich Schlumberger got his uh, got the honors to to give his name to the plants. Apparently, just because he had some cacti growing in a greenhouse. At least that's what I could find in the, in the Wikipedia. Where it just said like, yeah, there's like a different researcher who actually named the plant after this guy because he had cacti. Um, mm. And in the beginning, it was only one species in the genus. Uh, genus. Um, and only over time, uh, people figured out, uh, actually over the course of the last 100 years, that there are other cacti um, that are wrongly put into different genera. Uh, genera. Um, so they actually like reanalyzed them and then uh, consolidated them into the Schlumbergera genus. Um, and recently like in the last 20 years it was dna analysis that helped a lot to actually pinpoint where these different species belong because they can be quite diverse in their morphology um so some of them are cacti some of them are epiphytes that grow on other um, plant material uh mm. and but they are closely related to each other they all come from the brazilian mountain regions uh near the sea at the, at the coast uh, coastal regions and um 
yeah, the one thing that or like the in the classification of this genus, uh, there are two main categories. There's the truncata ones that are derived from the Schlumbergera truncata, and there's the Bucklii ones that are, as the name implies, derived from the uh, um, species Schlumbergera russeliana. Um, and as with most ornamental plants, there's just a lot of crosses and hybrids and um, so by now it's actually quite diverse what you what you can find in this uh, genus and or um, sold under the name of Schlumbergera. Um, but yeah, originally uh, or the species that you find in nature, I think are by now between six and nine. It depends on who you ask. It's with like these uh, botanist things. Um, there is often some dis dispute about like. What which species is which yeah. and what the real first name should be and what it should be called now and there's actually yeah. a list of synonyms of like different other genera that used that sort of were all integrated to become this one Schlumbergera uh, genus I think some of them but actually sound nicer than Schlumbergera but it's the winning one but the the Schlumbergs not only have the Easter cactus but they also have the Christmas cactus right like yeah. dun 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 they like have two cacti and they um yeah, that's actually the, the truncata ones uh, they are, that are related to truncata are the ones that flower earlier. And that's also the um, one, the Gärtnerie, the um, Easter cactus. That's early in mm -hmm. the year. And there's ones that flower later in the year. And this is the ones from the Buckley uh, group, roughly speaking. Um, and there's, yeah, there's the uh, Christmas one. There's even a Thanksgiving cactus that flowers around Thanksgiving time. Is it also time. a Schlumberg? It's also a Schlumberg, yeah. So I feel like we should um, appeal to our listeners to go out, find a Schlumbergia and find their favorite holiday yeah. and just like choose common names. We should just get all of like, we're missing some. I mean, Thanksgiving is at least kind of a bit non-nominational, but it's it's quite US centric. I mean, what about like, I don't know, Anzac Day or Independence Day or um, 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 I don't know what a... Uh, the thing is, I'm not very invested in any public holidays. The Queen's birthday. We could have the Queen... Like, all of them could be called Queen's birthday cactus, and it could just be, like, every single one because we, we celebrate Queen Elizabeth's birthday <laughs> on different days of the year, depending on which country you're in. And even in Australia, like, different states of Australia celebrate our Queen's birthday on different days. Yeah, we don't celebrate the Queen's birthday here. It's disappointing. We could call one of them Angela's birthday, maybe. Angela. <laughs> Yeah, that would that would also be nice. Uh, no, I think my favorite would be May Day. I think May Day is my favorite holiday, and I would like to have a cactus devoted to it. Um, in the Handmaid's Tale, May Day is kind of a code um, to indicate whether you're in this this May Day's group to uh -huh. to help save to get people out of the country. Anyway, this is not important. This is not plant related. This is not important. But um, yeah, so check yeah. out the Schlumberger uh, genus <laughs> um, with its different. A species in there like we just wrote um, a little bit about the Easter cactus but there's other cacti there as well um, pick your your favorite one and maybe like send us a picture of your favorite Schlumbergera cactus uh, on a, spe a special holiday that is special to you and then we we just with our authority we just decide that from now on this cactus will be named after this holiday that you picked yeah I like that really muddy the water with common names in case it's not already muddy enough. <laughs> Diversity in the plants. Science. 
So today I'm talking about a non-white male scientist who I am quite excited about. She's considered by David Attenborough, the David Attenborough, to be one of the most significant contributors in the field of entomology, mm-hmm. which, Yarm, what is that the study of? A ducks. <laughs> well done. Uh, the the very funny German slash cross-language joke there is that Enter is, is duck in German. Um... I would say like five stars for that joke for Yoram, but again, please feel Out free of 100, to rate. You have to know. <laughs> <laughs> please rate our podcast on iTunes out of five based on how good you think that joke was by Yoram. Uh, <laughs> so entomology is the study of insects. Um, I always confuse it with etymology, which is the study of word origins. Because That's what even I would have said English, if I wouldn't have made a joke. <laughs> even though English is my first language, I struggle. Um, and you might be wondering why we're doing somebody who loves insects on this blog, which is theoretically a plant blog, even though we talk about bread a lot. Um, but she also <laughs> has some relationship to um, discovering interactions of insects with plants. And she did some really beautiful plant drawings. So that's why she's included. Hmm. Her name is Maria Sibylla Marion. Um, and I actually found out about her on a recommendation from a friend, which is that on YouTube, the Linnaean Society, which is this really old and currently active biological society, has released some videos. And one of them is called Fieldwork in Fancy Dress, A Natural History of Women in the Field by um, it's Dr. Sandy Knapp giving a, a talk. And you should definitely go and check that out. We'll put the link in the show notes. But one of the women she mentions, one of these fancy dress fieldwork women, is uh, Maria Marion. So, who is Maria Marion? She is from quite a while back. She was born in 1647, um, German born, and from the Swiss Marion family, which just the fact that they're mentioning her family name indicates that she was fairly posh, or at least from an important line of people. Um, And she started collecting insects when she was very young. So already at the age of 13, she raised silkworms. And I quite like this because I collected silkworms. And later in my life, I also collected pantry moths. Not deliberately, but I collected pantry moths. So I feel like a natural (laughs) collection. Does this count if it's an involuntary collection? I think so. (laughs) I'm a great entomologist myself. I have bed bugs. I don't know. Yeah. Yes, I think that counts. I think, like, probably to be a good um, entomologist, you need to have more than one species. But, like, I would say I have, like, a small but robust. Bugs and lice. <laughs> yeah. Look, the reality is my population of pantry moths was so robust that I had to leave the country to get rid of them. And yesterday I opened some craft supplies that I hadn't used since Berlin, and a moth came out. So, so you just brought it to UK. Great team. Yeah. Thank you. Please don't, please don't throw me out. Anyway, okay. Maria was born in Germany. She started collecting insects already at the age of, I don't know, as a young um, adolescent. But probably her most defining characteristic is that she was trained as an artist. So her stepfather taught her um, her artistic uh, trade, I guess. And later in her life, she actually taught art to other families, which gave her a source of income. But she also got access to these kind of rich families, grand estates, and then got access to their hella posh gardens. So that was kind of Mm. like a a double win situation, get a little bit of money and also get to see the pretty flowers. as I said, she was interested not only in um, the, the the flower drawings, but also so this is this kind of really beautiful, 
old botanical plates of and we've got to put some links in here they're, they're really starting to look at these I mean what dreams are made of these beautiful floral plates but also with insects kind of crawling all over them um and already in like the 1679 so when she was 32 years old she um published a two-volume series based on caterpillars so where she was just kind of drawing explaining different caterpillar species um and these had 50 of these beautiful botanical or i don't know caterpillarical plates um in each book uh in the wikipedia article about uh maria they say that marion was one of the first european naturalists to observe insects directly and I'm not really sure what they mean by that because I'm sure a lot of Europeans had observed insects previously. Yeah. At least in the kind of like pantry moth like <laughs> scheme of things. But maybe um, she observed them as like the prime target of her studies while others always just sort of looked at them as side effects or something. Yeah, so that was definitely a theme that a lot of people were like painting bugs or, or different insects, butterflies, like beautiful things next to flowers. But she was really actively observing them. She had this kind of true scientist desire to understand how they worked. And what she does seem to have been do, uh, described first is the metamorphosis process, metamorphosis process of the bug. So she mm. was really interested not only in like, here's a butterfly, but where does that butterfly come from? What does it need to get through the different stages of its development? Um... Uh, what's what's happening with her life so she moved to Holland um, with kids at some stage so she got married um, and then her husband seems to have been non-ideal at one point she divorced him he took her to court to try and make her come back to him she was like hell no I'm moving back with my mum and she moved to Holland with her children and then in Holland she because um, the Netherlands was this huge uh, trading hub at that time, she saw all these beautiful animals that were coming from the East and the West Indies, which um, was where um, Amsterdam was was kind of trading with and had fleets going there. So this like diversity of life that came from different parts of the world really excited her. And in 1699, so she's like, I don't know, in her 50s now? the Amsterdam granted her permission to travel to Suriname, which is in South America. And she took her youngest daughter, um, 52 years old she was, took her daughter, got on a boat and headed to Suriname. Um, And then she basically spent some years there just looking around, drawing everything, observing the world and getting really interested in the nature that was there. They aren't really sure how she got money for the mission. And Wikipedia, it says that she sold her own paintings to get money to go to Suriname, which suggests that she was first self-funded and also did like crowdsourcing for her science. Um, (laughs) But I'm not sure if that's true. It's possible that she also had some kind of um, backer or patron who was who was funding her. When she was in Suriname, she kind of took an interest not just in what she was supposed to be doing, like kind of drawing bugs and flowers but she was really interested in the agriculture she was really annoyed at the kind of colonial attitude where people only wanted to export sugar that was kind of what they were there for and they didn't have any interest in all the other amazing fruits and vegetables so like the pineapple things that you couldn't find in europe at the time Mm -hmm. um and when she was describing the insects and the flowers, she was not only just kind of writing down this insect looks blue or has five legs. 
she was also putting I don't know the habitat. <laughs> you can tell that you have a lot of knowledge about insects, like the the Look, typical. I'm assuming blue that blue would have five, five leg bugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that would not even technically be allowed to be an insect unless it had had an accident right like they have six legs don't they yeah. anyway um <laughs> but she she was not only like kind of looking at what she saw but she was also asking the local people how they use the different um plants and animals that she was interacting with and what their how they named them so there's still native american names that people use to refer to the plants in europe which she brought back with her so mm. she was really like invested in understanding the entirety of what she saw and also all the interactions that went on so how the bug like developed itself but also how the bug developed um with the plant and that was actually one of the the really important things that she did so she showed that the changes from for example a caterpillar to butterfly depended on how much nourishment that caterpillar got so depending on how much that ate of certain plant products the caterpillar would grow at different rates and be able to then develop but she also had this really important contribution which was observing that there was kind of a link between certain species of butterfly and certain plants which was basically that the in order to develop these organisms relied on nutrition from one plant species or just a handful of plant species which is kind of the reason that the, then the adult butterflies would specifically lay their eggs on or near this required plant so she kind of understood this it's not a symbiosis because the um the plant is getting eaten but this reliance that the bugs mm -hmm. had on specific species yeah, pretty um, much the ecosystem the idea of having like an intertwined ecosystem with like dependencies um yeah and at multiple levels so this is like the plant and bug one but also how like spiders would interact with insects um and like you know things that they would produce like saps or um yeah nutrients for other organisms she was really into this kind of food web idea and she also um was quite interested as i said in this insect development and this metamorphosis and she was one of the first people to note that some larvae actually shed the exoskeleton multiple times as they developed this kind of um, change that happens. Um, in any case, she had to return to the Netherlands at some point in 1701. Probably she got malaria, she got quite sick and she had to come back home. Um, and she published a book some years later, but then she also died um, in I think 1706 or something like this but not soon after she returned to Amsterdam. Oh no, it was a little bit later, 1717. So she was back in, in Holland for a few years, possibly with malaria. But after her death, she got kind of the highest of honors, which is that she got a whole lot of taxa and genre named after her. So of course, a lot of butterflies um, and moths, as well as some other bugs, a genus, a whole genus of mantises. Um, mm. uh, also some spiders, um, a lizard, a cane toad which is really not very flattering at all i would say a snail that's kind of cool um a bird mm -hmm. and of course a couple of pl plants as well so there is a bulbul bugle lily which has the name watsonia mariana so the mariana is after her but there's also an entire genus of flower plants flowering plants which are called mariania as, as the genus name it has 93 species and they come from mexico brazil and that kind of area so she has this entire mm. genus name after her um yeah that's her she had really an amazing life and did really important things for science not just for insects 
and plants, but also for kind of this understanding of of interaction webs and and ecological dynamics. I can really recommend reading her Wikipedia page. We'll put a link there. You also absolutely must Google image her her pictures or go and have a look at some of the plates because I think they're just really stunning. And they're so accurate that people still use them today. Um, it's something that has kind of withstood the test of time, the detail that she put into these these plates, these drawings. Uh, yeah, and, and finally, oh, sorry. Yeah, what I found interesting, I just looked at the Wikipedia article as well and I just saw that she was on the 500 Deutsche Mark bill um, together with some of the drawings that she did of plants, of silkworms and um, a dandelion and a butterfly. Uh, and it's like today's money, it would be 255 euros and roughly the same in dollars. Um, so it's not a bill that I ever saw in circulation um, when mm -hmm. I was when I was younger. This was not like the amount I would get as pocket money, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, uh, I re I still remember the look of it, even though it's like over tw uh, like about 20 years now that we don't have that currency anymore um so i remember that and the drawings that i put on there was actually a pretty good choice i'm, I'm quite um i applaud for that like that there's that. like a mosquito on one side and a kind of dandelion maybe no yeah a dandelion an inchworm and a butterfly okay yeah very nice Anyway, yep. definitely go and check her out and go and check out the um, original source which I found out about Maria um, Vaya, which is um, this, what's it called? Fieldwork in Fancy Dress. So from the Linnaean Society on YouTube. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 Um, yes, bias. Uh, this is me um, about talking about bias, and it's quite fitting for my um, struggle to find the right controls because uh, my bias is the illusion of control. Um, mm -hmm. The idea that um, there are some things that are out of your control, but uh, you or there is a bias that people have a tendency to think that they are in control. Um, mm -hmm. They did some uh, testing on that. Uh, there are some, some notable experiments that they did in, in psychological studies where they had pretty much randomly generated inputs like um, two lambs, one said score and one said not score, and then um, a set of controls like a, a single button or multiple buttons. And they had people uh, there and they told them, like, try to improve or like try to influence the the um, input like the lamps or uh, what you see there um, and then mm -hmm. they could press buttons or not and uh, later they were asked uh, about their feeling like how much influence they thought they would have on the outcome and usually people overestimate their influence um, on the outcome there was one very notable example where they studied um, bankers in London and they had pretty much like a, a curve from like a, the stock market, like a, a, a made up stock market curve that would randomly move. And they were told that they had buttons um, where they could um, interact with it, uh, different keys to um, yeah, affect pretty much their, their trading strategy. Um, and they, they were told to um, improve the curve. And then they tried to did all the interactions and later they did service, asked them about um, 
whether or not like how much they they influence it how much they thought uh, they had an influence on it and they realized mm -hmm. that people who are more prone to the illusion were much worse bankers in in real life because they can't really link what they're what they're putting into the system and what the system is doing as a response they overestimate the things that they put in so they're they're playing a game where they're told that if you play around with stuff you will get you will be able to change the outcome but the reality is there's there's yeah it's rigged they can't change anything yeah. basically yeah okay exactly and um so people who are less prone to this bias they also perform better at least as bankers in this study they had like uh, bigger winnings and a better strategy and and so on um because they had a better grasp of how much they could actually do with the market and to me mm -hmm. i i picked this because um this is something we I think encounter in like daily life as well where there's sometimes things outside of our influence and we think that we can do something about it um, but also in science where sometimes you have um, biological systems that are very very complex and you think that um, pipetting your chemicals in a specific order has an influence on your on your experimental output or um, specific like treatments of like where where you put your plants in a growth chamber um, or how you handle certain things like really minute things I, I think everybody who works in a lab knows somebody who has like their trick their magic thing that they do to get better results and Often You're talking about the fact that scientists can often be quite superstitious in some ways about yeah. what they believe. Like, you know, I only use this chamber to run my gels or I and there's possibly no reason why yeah. behind these superstitions. Put their, their buffers in specific bottles and not in other bottles. And um, I think it's all about this idea of having control over a biological system when in fact often you don't like you can obviously there is a link between the things that you do to your system and the output of your system but often it's not as complete or as direct as researchers would like to think and that's why i thought this this idea that there are just things that are outside of our control even though they appear to or to us we think we can have an impact on them i found that quite interesting um i mean there's also this weird thing though because you're saying the ones who think they have the illusion actually did worse as far as their job in banking yeah but on the other hand i'm sure they there's other studies that suggest and i haven't actually looked at this recently but somebody's told me that the easiest way to be unhappy is to know that you don't have control regarding input and output so these ones who thought they had control might have been worse at banking but they might have been happier in their banking job yeah because at least like <laughs> they think that they're doing something yeah there's definitely um a benefit to this um the the idea that yeah it gives you sort of a peace of mind it gives you um a, a handle to or like a, a grasp at, at at things and it makes you feel important and i, I think this is on a on a mental level quite quite uh, yeah important to have that to know that you are not just completely like useless in the grand scheme of things and things run without you but to have the idea that you ha you make an impact and I I mean we know that in, in many cases you do make an impact on on things, um, but yeah um, I think um, it it's good for mental health to have some like a little bit of illusion of control but when it comes to very important things maybe it's also good to step back and look at what you can actually influence and what you can't influence 
Um, so yeah, so that's the illusion of control. I just try to pull up the wheel and, and say which uh, area that's from, but I'm failing at doing that because I just <laughs> have the illusion of control. <laughs> yeah. Sure, you're... <laughs> I'm just going to shoehorn that into everything now. Oh, that would just be... You'd just be the most unbearable person <laughs> at, at parties, right? Like, do, do you really... Can you really do this? Or do you just have the illusion... That you can do this, and then you would also do a magic trick and be like, "See, <laughs> then life is an illusion," and like throw some smoke bombs on the ground and disappear. Yeah, uh, it's from the category uh, of need to act fast, and to act, we must be confident we can make an impact and feel what we do is important. Um, oh yeah. So that's where this this is from on the wheel of cognitive biases. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun. get some corona housekeeping out of the way before we do all of the other fun facts yeah um okay so i have two coronavirus things but they're both not at all serious so i think that's um yeah um the first one is uh that there was somebody and i saw this by the nature briefing again there was a scientist i think from france uh he's Caplamino on YouTube and he made a something called a the quarantine machine which is basically using all of his stockpiled uh, toilet paper to um, make this kind of what's it called it's not perpetual motion it's this thing where um, you you make a very that's the one exactly where you have like a very simple outcome from a very complex setup so I'm not going to give the spoiler to show what is produced at the end, but you basically have all of these toilet rolls moving and giving out messages throughout a one whole minute of um, of like dynamics. And there's an ultimate outcome, which is also related to coronavirus. And I like that um, in the nature briefing, they mentioned we do not condone stockpiling of toilet paper but this is very very good and <laughs> i would recommend you watch it but if you don't have toilet paper at home maybe save this one for another time because it will make you angry <laughs> and very sad i'm just looking at all the toilet <laughs> paper that you don't have mm. yeah um i have something from australian researchers that worked on an uh, australian native plant um which is uh, nicotiana bentamiana uh, a close relative to nicotiana tabacum which is tobacco that we both used in the lab uh, for our yeah. experiments, which is a lot of fun. Uh, it's just an amazing plant. And one of the things <laughs> that make um, Nicotiana tabacum and also Nicotiana bentamiana so exciting and fun to work with is their complicated genome structure, their allotetraploids, uh, which means that mm. they have two genomes from uh, each of their parents sort of stacked on top of each other, which just makes it overall very complicated if you want to study um, the gene sequences and so on. But uh, this research team um, from the um, Queensland University of Technology if I'm just, just to make it clear, this is not like um, two genomes, one from mum and one from dad of the same species. It's, uh, yeah, it's actually, so what we have is two half genomes, half from mum and half from dad. They have two entire genomes and mum is one species and dad is an entirely different species and that's what makes it so so complicated. So firstly they've got double the amount of genomes as like normal species. I'm using little inverted brackets but secondly, those genomes here are from different species. Yeah. And they, Chaos. Sh they share some sequences and they have some uh, very different in some other sequences and that makes it very hard to just assemble the gene when you sequence it. Mm -hmm. And um, 
they now uh, finish the sequencing of Nicotiana Bentamiana and what they are doing, which is so um, interesting in the, in the current uh, time, is that they shared their unpublished information um, so that other uh, scientific teams can use this now to take advantage of the capabilities of Nicotiana Bentamiana as sort of a biofactory for compounds um, and they mm -hmm. can develop methods to produce antibodies, vaccines and uh, therapeutics against viruses like uh, COVID-19 in the plant and instead of waiting for the process of publishing it they release the information now uh, ahead of time um yeah so that others can uh, benefit from it much quicker which uh, i think is it's it's quite a cool practice right now and i think we've i've seen that a couple of times popping up where research is sort of sidetracked from the conventional approach of like writing up like getting your results uh, submitting it for for publication and then going through rounds of like editing and maybe even resubmission to other things and so i mean we see that sometimes in the papers that we present that it takes a year or more between submission and actual publication and right now as time is of the essence people um choose like these sort of alternative tracks where they get out the information uh while they wait for the the process of uh, having it peer reviewed and properly published so. Again, really important for the scientific like audience and to keep science moving fast, but also somewhat dangerous when things have not been peer reviewed because there yeah. can be some crap out there as well. So just keep in mind, sure. um, if you are looking up COVID information, make sure you follow a reputable source of news and don't just say because it looks like a paper and it's on a preprint server, it yeah. is real factual information. That's That's always very important to say. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, I have one final thing about um, COVID, which is only for those people who deal with hard times by trying to kind of laugh about them. If that's not your style, that's completely okay. If it is your style, people deal with tragedy in different ways, so it's fine. Um, but this is something on The Guardian that a friend sent to me just today, and it's that there's now a Corona Zombies movie. So apparently some people have started making movies about the coronavirus and the situation and there is one for Corona Zombie. Apparently it's terrible, uh, as you would probably expect, given that the people who filmed this are in fact in isolation. So it's basically one actor cutting in <laughs> themselves with like old zombie <laughs> films and like news inf maybe stuff apparently there's like terrible jokes about people getting like deserving death for not washing their hands it's kind of like it's like kind of a one trick pony um the only <laughs> I, I quite like I haven't I haven't watched it it's only one hour but um so far I still have other things I want to do with my life even in isolation um before I want to watch this but I like that the the guy who wrote the um the article Stuart Heritage put at the the end of the thing that in the future everyone will make a coronavirus movie and for most part these will be sad and serious and boring and will largely exist so that Mark Ruffalo who will play a senator whistleblowing government to negligence in every single one of them can emote sufficiently for award season to notice <laughs> um, but he said that like while you're we're kind of dealing with the reality maybe it's not a terrible idea to watch something really schlocky and yes. horrible just so that we can kind of get some distance what i thought is uh, my prediction for the future is that we will see a lot of sitcoms integrating um the concept of isolation and quarantine um, they will probably choose like a different disease and a different thing but i think in 
a year or two or whenever they they can start filming stuff again uh, we will see like a big wave of um yeah sitcoms or comedy pro uh, things uh, are um, revolving around isolation and quarantine measures and so on mm. so yeah it uh, seems like it would get i mean it would be a very cheap sitcom to film but it would get old quite fast as well right like it's yeah. i mean you need some sort of external stimuli at some point for your characters yeah to move on yeah like Ross can only hook up with Rachel so many times before everybody gets bored and hates Ross. Um, <laughs> Which I mean, speaking you, of the accurate number sorry. of getting annoyed with Ross is one. So, <laughs> um, speaking of stuff that is filmed entirely at somebody's home, you might have already seen this, but um, John Krasinski is doing a weekly show that he's filming from his study. I want to say called Some Good News, where he just tries to show some good news each week. Um, it has some famous guest stars. If you like The Office, you should definitely check it out. And I would really recommend episode two if you happen to like Hamilton. So that's they're like short 10, 15 minute episodes, just some distraction from the world around us. And if you can go out uh, and by yourself and in uh, with proper social distancing, I found a cool thing uh, f uh, through Lena Struve's Twitter account. Um, we featured her in the past. I can't remember if on the blog or on the podcast for a paper um, that she was uh, the first author of. Uh, and it's about using the app iNaturalist to do um, plant species identification. Um, and there is a um, a person called Aaron Liston. I'm just figuring out what his role is. Um, I think he's a researcher and uh, in his position as a researcher uh, training st college students, um, he devised this uh, sort of remote teaching opportunity uh, or learning opportunity for the people who take part in it um, to go out and identify 20 species, 20 plant species, and then you can submit it. There's a process um, where he has like a guide on how to do this properly, how to take proper pictures. Then use the iNaturalist app that we mentioned in the, in the past um, that helps with Identif uh, identifying plants uh, and then submit this in a, in, a, in a table and then he will award credits for it. I don't know if these credits are worth anything in terms of college system because I guess that really much depends on your college but I like the idea of incentivizing people to go out alone um, into nature and do some field work uh, uh, while they can't attend universities or colleges. But not if you're in the that. city, not near other people. Yeah, not near other people. Do this like on your own, isolated. Go to places where you don't run into other people, um, uh, and then yeah, work work with plants and uh, identify them and gather some virtual credits for it. Uh, so yeah, we'll link to the tweet and to the blog post with all the information for it. By popular demand, um, there is a, a thing that I also found on on Twitter when I was looking for different things. Um, to put on here and I just gave it a title Disgusting Hornworms um, because I, I don't like bugs um, and there is a guy who says that he has he has a, a hornworm it's like a blue thick nasty caterpillar that has like beautiful patterns on it and so on but I wouldn't touch it he touches it with his hands and he says this dude does not want to puppet uh, I think he's enjoying being a caterpillar too much all he wants to do is eat and he's gotten enormous which sounds kind of nice and, and it's just like a, a big boy who wants to get bigger and fatter uh, but then somebody says like this uh, caterpillar is actually parasite uh, 
Parasite Heist. Um, that's from the account at Darling Beetle. Um, and apparently there's a wasp that lies its eggs into caterpillars and then these wasp um, um, the spawn of it, uh, what is it then? Probably also it's like larvae. Um, they uh, excrete chemical control signals to the caterpillar so it won't pupate and it will stay a caterpillar and continue feeding so they can then grow in it and then there's pictures um, further down where um, sort of all of these eggs come out of the caterpillar and <laughs> it's just it's just Gross. disgusting um, how could she tell what what was it about the caterpillar which made her know that that it didn't pupate that it's that like that's a very common thing apparently um for this type of uh, like it's a, a hornworm um that it's known that they are the hosts of this Broconid wasp Cortesia congregata um, and just because I guess of um, probability he says like he has this species of worm that doesn't um, go into metamorphosis um, and that's probably due to the wasp so she can't say that the wasp certainly uh, in parasitized this particular bug but it's just a thing that happens to hornworms and, so then um, this, this guy has this kind of pet worm, pet caterpillar, and he's probably going to die a horrible, painful death getting eaten from the inside out. Yeah. He's never going to pupate. He's never going to become a beautiful butterfly. He's just like stuck as a big fat worm and then he will die. Yeah. Um, he looks so cute. He looks like um, the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland. He has this yeah. like, he looks like a toy. It's very fake looking. Yeah, it looks like, like plastic. And I guess it's also probably not disgusting to touch, but just the idea uh of this caterpillar and, and they have like these what is it like four pairs of hind legs and then they have like the like hands the small legs in front just in front of the mandibles or mouth <laughs> or whatever it's called in insects um it actually <laughs> looks very interesting like i can see it's the appeal so of cute. this it looks and apparently like a little <laughs> no it's really cute and apparently these are often used in like biology experiments as like a thing um, that people have as a pet, uh, although these are a pest to tomato and tobacco, um, there's different kinds. Um, they are used in sort of the lab and teaching context because you can st study them quite easily, and that's why people often have them at home, like in in like terrariums or whatever, uh, where they then grow and pupate and so on. Um, yeah, and sometimes they get infected by by wasps and. Are, have larvae growing inside them and it's like a full threat I didn't read all of it because my like insectophobia kicked in and um, <laughs> the account Darling Beetle um, they show a lot of There's other different insects so um, I think it's interesting if you care for this sort of thing um, it's great there's like somebody on the thread has said so are the wasps gonna kill him and the person who was like writing mealworm so at Darling Beetle the one who was writing all this information just replies yes <laughs> <laughs> like that is the fact of life <laughs> yes <laughs> wow yeah so um, yeah and I actually thought about this this little um, tidbit when you were talking about um, let me just pull up the name again so I uh, about Marion uh, Maria Sibylla Marion and her like the close link between entomology and um, plants because they are uh, like they are in a very close relationship with each other insects and plants and so if you only look at one of the two 
um, you might miss some important things. And that's why I, although I hate insects, I am always interested or fascinated sort of in, in a way to me, it's like looking at a car crash. Sort of, I don't want to look at it, but I do want to look at it. I want to learn more about it. Um, so um, the relationship between insects and plants. And speaking of relationship between plants and insects, I found something on the conversation where um, the first author of a paper published in P uh, PNAS um, reported about her study of the impact of high CO2 concentration in the atmosphere on insect populations. Um, because when we have more CO2 in the air, it's um, to some respect, like if you, if you just take the high CO2 for, uh, without the rise in temperatures, um, it's usually better for the plants. If they have more CO2, they can fix more carbon and they can grow faster. And the study that they published um, that's called Nutrient Dilution and Climate Cycles Under Light Declines in a Dominant Insect Herbivore by Ellen uh, A.R. Velti, um, they uh, looked at the effect that it has on insect populations because when plants grow faster, they sort of uh, dilute out the nutrient content. So for per leaf area that a bug would eat, there's less nutrients because it's sort of mm -hmm. extended quickly. And it's um, they they say in the in the article that's published in the conversation, it's more iceberg lettuce than kale. So it's much more mm. water and sort of just cellulose instead of like dense with nutrients. And um, this is one of the factors that leads to a decline in uh, in this case of grasshoppers that they studied, where they see a yearly decline of two percent of grasshoppers. And in the study, they link that um, to the faster growth of the the plants that these grasshoppers feed on. And sort of they instead of eating nutritious kale, they just eat iceberg lettuce all day, and they can't really sustain their life on this. And that's why uh, insect populations might suffer from this. And just thought this was an interesting idea uh, or just an interesting demonstration of the interconnectedness of ecolo uh, ecological systems. So even, mm -hmm. I mean, just in plants, there's this discussion, uh, is the climate change um, a net positive or negative on plants because more CO2 is, is good for plants, but higher temperatures can be bad for plants and uh, um, lack of, of water can be uh, is, is usually bad for plants and now we have like another layer on top of that like depending on how plants react to this then you have the, the insects feeding on it and then when you have decline in insect populations you have decline in like bird populations that feed on the insects and so on um, and just like this idea of diluting out nutrients by faster growth is something that I haven't seen before and that's why it struck my attention and I would like to take this moment to say that we are against human-caused climate change on yes. this podcast. <laughs> I'm not saying we believe in it, <laughs> and we don't think we should encourage it. Yes, yes. And our views are our own. <laughs> and, and when I said net positive, I didn't mean as like it's generally good that we have the climate change. But when it comes to you know, plant the growth, warmer summers will really be nice. Like. <laughs> Yeah, uh. I don't know why people are complaining. No, um, it's just like for for some plant systems, for some for some species. No, carbon. This carbon fertilization is is definitely something that has been discussed. That's not yeah. that's not wrong. And we've always we complain a lot about how terrible Rubisco is at finding um, carbon dioxide. It always gets oxygen instead. So more carbon dioxide can be helpful. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but I just thought I would make a small disclaimer, disclaimer there, yeah. <laughs> in case somebody like quotes Yoram as being pro 
they're not even pro climate change, but like, yeah, I guess like thinking that we should encourage climate change. Or yeah, like, it's good. It's good. Burn more fossil fuels, get more cows to fart, like whatever it takes to really get those, push those degrees up. You know, they say 1.5 degrees. Let's stop it there. No, Yoram says no. no He's going for 15. four degrees. <laughs> oh, dear God. <laughs> Okay, um, <laughs> I have only a few other things. One of them is quite stupid, so I'll start with that. Um, I <laughs> I kind of have this new idea that there's a lot of terrible news in the world right now. It's a particularly stressful time for a lot of people, but there's this weird balance between wanting to stay in touch and wanting to discuss the world around us and the situation with our friends and what's happening, but then also not wanting to drag other people down. So this morning I was um, reading kind of the, the news in the morning and... I messaged my colleague at work um, about something which just pissed me off. Trump basically made a statement where he blamed um, the World Health Organization for not calling COVID-19 a pandemic fast enough. And he was basically like, "Uh, it's not my fault, it's their fault. And I kind of sent her this message like, this is so ridiculous. And then I kind of immediately felt terrible because I was like, you know what? Maybe she doesn't have the desire to hear about this right now. I mean, it's not... It's not necessarily okay that I just give her my frustrations all the time. So I tried to counteract that by sending her something which I know she loves, which is pictures of turtles. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) when I was doing this, I found quite an old post on MNN, Earth Matters. I'm not even sure what it is. Oh, Mother Nature Network. I have no (laughs) idea what quality of reporting this is. And frankly, I don't care because it has pictures of turtles and tortoises. So there's a webpage we'll link to that was posted way back in 2014 when the internet was still a baby. Um, It's called 19 Weird and Wonderful Turtle and Tortoise Species. And you know, if you're feeling down, I would really recommend you go on this page, have a little scroll, take a look at an Indian flap shell turtle which has kind of like a little pig nose going on or maybe you want to look at an alligator snapping turtle which sounds exactly as the name suggests and (laughs) feels kind of embarrassed about the way it looks um yeah I, I really can suggest this kind of image therapy if you like kittens go to kittens if you like turtles go to turtles it's sometimes okay to not read the news and just look at stupid animals instead yeah with this bit of trump news i i read the headlines and i immediately didn't want to read turtles right you immediately like close the tab with something else i'm going to the turtles um yeah yeah. (laughs) so that's that's my recommendation of, of, of turtles and Yoram's going to be a complete sweetheart and put a picture of a snapping turtle as part of the <laughs> the podcast. His sign, because I always give him more work. But trust me, Yoram, it's worth it for this turtle. <laughs> yeah, I, I will do that. And it's true. They are very uh, pretty turtles. Um, you said like about 2014 when the internet was a baby. I recently came to the conclusion that 2010 is 10 years ago, which it shouldn't well be. <laughs> and that the internet in 2010 was just a better internet than what we have today. And then started looking no. at like old websites from back then. And like YouTube wasn't filled with ads. Um, Facebook didn't try to manipulate people into voting for terrible people. You know what people. I liked? I liked how everybody, including official sites, used Comic Sans as their font of choice in 2010. I'll, I'll take that any time over the mess that we have today of like cookie warnings and... Um, ads everywhere and political influence over social media and right-wing trolls and this was just it was it's i was just commenting to my friend nostalgia but 2010 i enjoyed the internet much more than i do now 
now we know that April 2020 was when Yoram officially became an old man who was just like, everything was butter when I was a child. Off my lawn. Absolutely was. Um, I mean, if this had happened in like the 90s or even the early 2000s, we would have had no way of staying in in contact with our family. And especially like for me, like my family's in Australia. My my friends are in Berlin. Um, This would not have been an easy task. And I would feel really freaking isolated right now. Yeah. um, That's why I'm not saying we should go back to the 90s. We should go back to 2010. That's my, I I built a (laughs) time machine. But we didn't have Zoom in 2010. Or whatever it is that's stealing our data these days. No, but we had Skype, and Skype wasn't terrible. Skype is terrible. Now it is, but back then it it worked quite well. Yeah, Um, do you think 2010 could could deal with, like, I don't know, 80 million people trying to use Skype at at the same time of the day to call their loved ones? Not in Germany, but it doesn't work now in Germany. We didn't have Netflix back then. We had Netflix, but it was a DVD mail order. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you couldn't use the DVDs because somebody would have touched them and you'd be like, should I disinfect this first? Should I wear my, my Netflix gloves? Like, what's the deal here? Yeah, yeah. Not everything was great, but overall, um, mm. I enjoyed it much better. You uh, know what? I liked 1910. Back when women couldn't vote, didn't have many <laughs> rights, couldn't get divorced. Those were the good old days. I mean, it's actually a good point. Like in 2010 in Germany where there was no equal no rights to marriage. No gay marriage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well. well done, Yarm. In which in which Yarm is pro-climate change and a homophobe. No, I said... We've done well. I said internet was better in 2010. Not the world. Internet was better. <laughs> Okay, um, I will do a very quick one, which is dun, 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 that there was a publication which came out just a couple of days ago, um, 8th of April, in Nature, which is an engineered pet depolymerase to break down and recycle plastic bottles. And it's basically that a group of scientists have engineered an enzyme that is better at eating plastic, which, I mean, obviously this is a starting point, but I think this is a good sign, right? Yeah, I think I heard about this Um on the side but I didn't really look into this uh, which makes me the perfect person to talk about this at length now <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's really do you have cool. any opinions about like COVID or about like I um, think what people should do is wear masks but inside out because then the, when the virus comes oh it, my does, gosh. it thinks it it's already confused. inside <laughs> you because it sees the inside of the mask and like ah I'm comfortable here and then, and then it won't go actually through oh my the goodness. mask so people wear your mask um, inside out <laughs> I did manage to find this open access somewhere, so I think we can put a link to this um, article and you can have a look at it yourself. But again, this comes with a warning because I personally am a prophet, not a wizard, I think. I haven't read the book, but I think I'm more doom and gloom than believing scientists will save us, and I think that's the prerequisites. my point is, science is great. Science can fix problems, but like, let's not rely on science to fix problems. Um, reduce before you reuse, before you recycle, before you rely on engineered pet depolymerizers to break down and recycle your plastic bottles. Yeah, do that's the take-home message here. Where did they get this um, enzyme from? Did uh, did you find that? Um, yeah, it originally comes from a bacterium called Idionella sakainensis. Okay. Um, but but then they probably optimize it no, to work it a different this one outperforms that previous one so okay. I'm not sure where this one is if it's coming from that and it's been changed or if it's um, completely made I have to be honest I had a quick look at the abstract and I haven't read the paper yeah I mean they, they're not about plants and it makes them more difficult so do you have a cat <laughs> fact because otherwise um, you have, have to have suffer through fact. my cat fact 
Okay. Tell me your cat fat. Tough on you. Your loss. Cat fact. You know, when, when I don't stumble across a good cat fact randomly by just browsing the web uh, the way I usually do, I put it into Google News search and most of the articles were about the thing that we actually talked about, I think, last week about the um, link between Yarm. cats and Corona. Yarm. Yes. Yarm, I thought of a cat fact. Okay, good. Then we don't have to talk about how Hugh Jackman turned down the role for cats. Oh, yeah, this is better. Can I give a really quick cat yeah. update that's not a fact? One of my team members adopted a kitten in the coronavirus crisis because, I mean, firstly, they need to go out of the shelters and secondly, people are at home, so it's a great time to adopt pets. And now we have a kitten that comes to team meetings. Yay! Yay! Okay, it's not a cat fact. <laughs> my favorite thing happening in, in uh, video calls is cats or animals or some of children, but mostly like mm. cats got coming into a frame. Okay, tell yeah. me about Hugh Jackman. It's just, I'm uh, listening. I mean, uh, the, the recent Cats, mo uh, cats movie which is a massive train wreck, as I think pretty much everyone agrees. We haven't seen it. Have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it, but I think no. I've seen more commentary on it that like extends the runtime of the actual would movie. Would you say, like, if you had to rank your expertise, would you say the Cats movie is above coronavirus and um, the the pet recycling enzyme, or would you say it's like roughly all the same? Like, you're just <laughs> ultimate expert in all of them. I think I know more about the Cats movie. Um, okay. Then I know about the, the virus or pet recycling enzymes. Um, and yeah, the director, uh, Tom Hooper, uh, who directed Cats, he before uh, directed Les Miserables, where Hugh Jackman was starring. And so <laughs> people were wondering if Hugh Jackman was asked to perform in Cats. And he actually was asked, but due to <laughs> like uh, uh, time reasons, he couldn't take part in this project. He was, was busy with something else. I don't know what it was. So he wasn't available. And so, um, yeah, he dodged a massive bullet there. And <laughs> that's the one cat fact that I could find. <laughs> it's, it's not something we've talked already about. Um, and yeah, I, I think at one point I want to watch the movie, but at the same time, I know it will probably be like the the bad kind of bad like mm. it's not even fun anymore to watch it's just i know emily heller on baby genius says it's good to get high and watch it that's that's yeah. the information that i've heard but, but i very rarely yeah. get high so um i don't think i will have the opportunity i do not it. ever yeah so. um i have to say i rarely want to shit on creative types who are making the world more fun but I haven't watched the old Les Miserables, so I'm also like one of those obnoxious people who's going to be an expert without watching it. But I am a Les Mis purist, so I grew up listening to the complete symphonic recording. And frankly, the idea of Russell Crowe being Javert makes me physically ill. Um, <laughs> so this is now two ways that Tom Hooper has wronged me. And two strikes is fine, but three strikes and it's done, Tom. Yeah. I don't know who you are, but it's done. <laughs> I would actually quite like to watch the, the, the Cats movie at some point. I think it would be fun. In So, like, it's got Judy Dench in it. Like, Dame Judy Dench. It's got Sir Ian McKellen. And at some point, one or both of them is licking milk out of a saucer. Like, this, this has got to be at least a little bit amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I watched uh, this um, Lindsay Alice on on YouTube. I think she's fairly well known. She um, is a writer and movie critic, and I quite enjoy her take on movies. And she published an hour-long video on why is Cats um, going deep into the movie adaptation, but also like the bigger context of like how the original musical was written, and um, 
it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, like, the original musical also doesn't have a plot. Yeah. So I was really into musicals. Or, I mean, I was really into Lemmy's as a kid, as I've mentioned. And I wanted to get into Cats. But I just, as a young child, I just couldn't follow that narrative. I was like, what the hell is happening? Like, why should I care about Mr. Mistoffelis? And, yeah, sure, he's clever. But what is what is he giving me here? I, I, I never actually watched uh, neither the musical nor, like, the movie or anything. There's a movie from, what, the 90s as well? Yeah, and there's this apparently like, like a, scr- a scr- uh, filmed um, stage adaptation of Cats um, that was specifically, mm. um, yeah, had some changes to it so it could be filmed uh, better and had like some special effects and so on. But I think at least when it happens on stage, you're looking at it and you're enjoying the dances and sort of the whole thing happening live is mm. interesting in itself, even though it has no plot. But taking this then and film putting this into a movie with no plot... Um, it's not exciting to watch people dance in a movie because we've seen that a lot and there's cuts and everything in between so you know it's not like the same stage actors that for so two you're not hours as impressed are going by the crazy scale. Yeah. so it's just it gets very very boring very fast so um but yeah. again, you've seen you've seen none of the cat's products. You would like to have that. Let's put that I on the record. I watched like the, the one hour long YouTube video of a very good commentator <laughs> on That's the different so things. That's like you haven't watched the original product. You've just read the criticisms of the product. But from somebody We've discussed who re- this before. But uh, but um, Lindsay Ellis, she really likes musicals and is really like it comes from a from a person who likes these sort of things and who wants mm. to enjoy it. And then sees the cats movie, and it's just like no, no. Yoram and I had an argument that lasted about six months, where he would occasionally sh- on Fifty Shades of Grey, and I would tell him he's not allowed to talk about Fifty Shades of Grey until he goes and reads the freaking books. And I haven't read the books, like I had no investment in it. I was just like, no, you cannot comment on this unless you actually go and do your research. You're a scientist. Read the source material and then complain about it. And then he would say, no, I'm allowed to have an opinion even if I haven't. Re-. And this this lasted for a long time, right? Yeah, uh, I, it's unresolved. I th- still think like you if haven't you... read the books. I haven't read the books. I think I've seen at least one of the movies. Yeah. I might have seen all of. Them. Have I seen? No, I don't think I've seen. I've seen. I've seen a movie. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's my my um, cat fact about uh, that movie would be better with cats in it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, if they would have if they would have filmed two hours of just like real cats doing real cat things, I think that would. I mean, been also better. if Christian Grey was a cat, all of the times when he was an asshole, you'd be like, eh, but it's kind of cute because he's a cat. <laughs> no, I, I was talking about the Cats musical now, not the Fifty ah, Shades. Ah, okay, with actual cats. <laughs> okay. I think there's many movies that would be better if it would just be actual cats that they would let loose and within the sets and just film what happens. I actually, one of my other colleagues, I was asking him how it was going and I have this amazing ability to change the conversation to Cats within about like, you know, six steps of separation. So after about a minute of chatting with him, he had showed me the photographs of the five cats that his his family has at home. And I think people like this, if, if you happen to have five cats lying around at home, a, a video recorder or just a mobile phone with a video thingy attachment, why not refilm cats with actual cats? <laughs> like, why not? I, what I, else are you doing? You're isolated. You have a lot of cats. I posted pictures of my cat, like one picture of my cat on Instagram today. And then a friend was like, more cats and then I, st- I just looked through like my my camera roll and was just like adding five more pictures of my cats because why not like cats bring enjoyment yeah. so cats cats are great <laughs> so. i'm not that great at responding to people's instagram stories but if there's a cat i'll almost always respond <laughs> yes 
That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you can follow us on social media. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm uh, at Plants Pipettes there. I, I, I personally, I run the Twitter. It's just me. Uh, if <laughs> you want to I get, hack it. <laughs> and then, yeah, if you want to get... Is uh, it hacking if you have to give me the password every second week when I forget it? Does <laughs> that count as hacking? <laughs> it's very poor hacking. Um, so you can, peop- um, <laughs> if people want to talk to you... <laughs> Uh, they can go on Facebook or on Instagram. It's at Plants and Pipettes. And we also have a blog. It's www.plantsandpipettes. And there we release not only the podcast, but also different articles about cool things that are happening in the world of plant molecular biology, usually twice a week. And you can rate us on iTunes. Give us five stars. Uh, one star for every amazing joke that I make uh, during an <laughs> episode. <laughs> I would like to mention that he made a pun that was in response to an English joke but the pun was in German so that's either very amazing or very terrible so (laughs) rate accordingly I think it's galaxy brain style jokes so I'm I'm very smart what is Uh, is galaxy brain you're too old to understand I'll explain it to you (laughs) another time Um, you can rate us on iTunes wait I'm younger than you aren't I younger than you Uh, yeah you are Um, wait I don't know how old are you I will explain it to you when you get to my age child Okay. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> you can find us on iTunes. It's, no, we did that. We did that. Um, read if we got anything wrong, um, or if you can, <laughs> not like if when when we get things wrong, <laughs> you're very welcome to um, write a, write in and um, tell us off and give us the right yeah. answer to the things that we say wrong. Or if you have any questions or comments, please uh, feel free to contact us. We're always very happy to hear back from you. Yeah, and that's actually a reminder, a big thank you to, was it Adriana on Twitter who um, gave us a suggestion of a cool article that we've just had to look into. Um, we didn't make it in time for this week's show, but we'll definitely be talking or writing about that one soon. Yeah, and I think that's like our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye.